0: the chief content officer and editorial director at Institutional Investor. Prior to joining I.I. a year ago, Kip spent seven years as the founding editor and editor-in-chief of CIO Magazine, a media platform that led him to interview 2,000 chief investment officers across every type of asset base around the world. Kip is a graduate of Harvard College, received a master's at Cambridge University, and was an elite crew rower, culminating in bringing home bronze medals for Team Canada in two world championships. Kip is inordinately well-liked in the community, and I had a hunch I would learn a lot from getting his perspective on the people who make capital allocation happen. Suffice it to say, I wasn't disappointed. Our conversation starts with an inside look at chief investment officers, how Kip finds them, ranks them, and discovers what makes them tick. For the back half of the discussion, we turn to the lessons he's learned about investment success, incentives, fads, and issues that permeate capital allocation. Kip's modus operandi is storytelling, and this conversation is chock full of good ones. I hope you enjoy the show. And if you do, this week, if you're single and walking down the street while listening to capital allocators, and look up and see a beautiful woman or man coming your way, What better way to get the conversation going than saying, excuse me, but you happen to know about capital allocators? They might respond, that sounds amazing, and start a really interesting conversation. Who knows? It could be the beginning of a beautiful relationship. Thanks so much for spreading the word. Yep. thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Most of our conversations have been with money managers, with allocators, talking about what they do, but you have had a unique seat in meeting and talking to the allocators themselves. So we're going to talk quite a bit about what you've learned from those experiences. Good. Good. Well, let's start a little bit with your background and how you got to be in the seats that afforded you all these conversations.
1: I have... no formal training for what we do. You know, as a journalist, I took one creative writing class after high school, and it was literally the worst grade I got in college. And I never took another creative writing class in the world, mostly because it was me and 10 females, because the topic of the class was femme fatales, you know, dangerous women. So I clearly was going to get hurt on a grade, (laughs) on a curve there. So I had no formal training. Graduated from college, and I was a rower, so I knew that I was going to attempt to make the Canadian national team. But in the meantime, I had a year of working, and I had a year of work visa. And a friend of mine in college, her mother was a secretary to a man named Charlie Ruffle. A lot of people will know who Charlie Ruffle is. He's the founder of Plan Sponsor Magazine, Global Custodian Magazine, and Chief Investment Officer Magazine. And him and I really hit it off. He hired me to write an article on the Harvard Endowment. This was 2004. And if people remember, it was when the students were protesting the pay of two bond managers, Samuels and Middleman. They got $30 bucks a year that year to manage bonds for the university endowment. Now, having covered this industry for a long time, I know why they were paid that. As a student, it seemed atrocious that a janitor would be getting paid 9 bucks an hour and Samuels was getting $30 million. So Charlie hired me to write that article. And Jack Meyer didn't speak to me. He never speaks to the press. But the article essentially predicted that the team would leave en masse at some point. I didn't say when, but I said, there's, these people don't need this harassment effectively. And they're gonna leave because we've already seen it because you'd already seen a bunch of Harvard pups leave to start hedge funds and they've been very successful. And luckily for, for my journalistic career, Meyer left you know, less than a year later to start Convexity. So I got, uh, that was published in Plan Sponsor. I did journalism for a year, then went to Cambridge to row, rowed for the Canadian team. Um, in 2008, I retired from rowing. I was 26. In rowing years, that's somewhat old. I also knew if I kept going, it would be harder to get employed. Um, and so I got back in touch with Charlie Ruffle. This is the fall of 2008. I started an internship at Barclays on September 15, 2008. Wow. That, that didn't turn out. <laughs> as well as one thought but I got back in touch with Charlie and he he's a man of a, a million ideas uh, as anyone who has met him knows and he said let's start a magazine for only the biggest asset allocators the other media brands plan sponsor P&I institutional investor he said they've uh, they've sort of abandoned this space a little bit so we started this brand that became chief investment officer and um, so you know through the grace of a few people out of the gates, it worked. I, can st- I still remember the CIOs that opened their doors to who us were first. The first CIO I ever met was Jay Vivian. He was, at that point, the ex-CIO of IBM. Jay is a quirky guy, has strong opinions, but he's, like a lot of CIOs, really nice and wanted me to meet other people. So he introduced me to Carol McFate, who is a Harvard Business School classmate of his, who is now the Xerox CIO. People know Carol. Um, A bit like Jay, an iconoclast. We call them curmudgeons lovingly. And then uh, Charlie also introduced me to Jim Dunn of Wake Forest and Verger. And Jim was the first CIO to literally invite me to his office. And so the first time I ever met an allocator in a work environment, I flew to Wake Forest. Jim took me into his office, and he said, how much do you know? And I said, I don't know anything about what we're talking about here. And so Jim laid out his sort of mantra of what Wake Forest does and did. And he also explained to me, you know, these are the four things that CIOs care about within their their investment sphere, asset allocation, portfolio construction, manager selection, and risk management. And that is a paradigm that I've now taught to a lot of journalists that have worked for me because it's it's the most effective way to get them to understand what an allocator cares about. And so when we're designing magazines, you know, at CIO and now at Institutional Investor, um, that's how we still think, that how does this fit into the day-to-day job of our audience? Because if it does, and if we can make it exciting and not dry, you know, the world doesn't need another dry piece on smart beta, they'll read it. And so that's been the theory all along.
0: And so what did you figure out? Because I'm I'm sitting here doing these interviews trying to figure out that same question, right? How do you make material that might otherwise be dry interesting, entertaining to people? So what did you find out about the people involved as you went through and met more and more of them?
1: So in terms of just like purely making content or journalism interesting, I'm a voracious reader of other people's journalism. And there's great journalists out there not in the financial space, and you can take a lot of their formats and apply it here. So many people write business journalism boring. And our view at Institutional Investor now is that it doesn't have to be. You just have to put an interesting twist on what you're doing. So the first major cover story that we really got our hands on here at Institutional Investor, Leanna Orr, who has joined I.I. as well and been my longtime deputy, we basically said, like, I think one of us was flying through LaGuardia and we said, man, this sucks. And so I said, while well, we write an article called Why America's Airports Suck and talk about, <laughs> and talk about you know, how institutional capital, which is actually in place now, is really solving this problem because the American government system doesn't want to foot the whole bill for LaGuardia rebuild. So my understanding is that 80% of the capital into that refurbishment is private capital, is our core audience. And so we took an idea that like could be read by your mother. She's had a horrible flight experience as well, but applied it to our audience. So I like to say I've never really had a, a novel idea in my life. I'm just taking stuff that I see in New Yorker, in The Atlantic, in other magazines, and applying them to our niche universe. And it seems to have worked. The other thing, I talk about those four things that investors care about. They care much more, when you look at their reading patterns, about industry gossip, about the business of investing. You know, fee structures aren't really investing. They're the business of investing. Britt Harris moving to UTIMCO isn't about investing. It's about the business of investing. But we published a piece. I called it Page Six for Investors. We published it yesterday, and it got a huge reception because it was the inside story of how Britt moved from Texas teachers to UTIMCO. And people read it because they like to be on the inside. They like to be in the know. But they also, everyone in this industry, wants a better job. If you're an allocator, there are, there are huge exceptions to this rule. But I would say certainly a, a majority of the allocators – would love to end their careers as the CIO of a Ivy League endowment, yeah. and they will make take creative paths to go there. Uh, I've spoken to a lot of recruiters, and they sort of lay out the rules. You know, spend some time at a public fund, get some experience in that real mission-driven investing, get some experience in the private sector, spend some time at the corporate world, really understand, you know, the accounting behind it. So. People are always trying to figure out where the next job is. Now, again, there's exceptions to that. Some people, Scott Malpass, will never leave Notre Dame. (laughs) He's in his dream job. (laughs) Um, I think of even, you know, some public funds, I think of likes of Chris Ailman. Chris is a great guy and an absolute true believer in the mission of CalSTRS. And it won't surprise me at all if Chris ends his career there. He's nowhere near the end of his career, but he could be the longest tenured public fund CIO In America, because he's a true believer in what he's doing, and it's hugely admirable to see that. When you started, so you started
0: interviewing people, you start doing profiles, and before long, it's a business too, Mm -hmm. right? So there are award shows, there are lists, there are 40 under forty, there's all kinds of stuff. It's the key. And, And so how did you come up with the idea to profile these CIOs in that way, and particularly because outside of perhaps this notion that they're angling, so many might be angling or or planning down the road for their career, a lot of them don't like speaking in public.
1: Yes, so the creation of the lists, it wasn't, again, wasn't my idea. My first employee was a young woman named Paula Vassan. Paula had worked at Yahoo Finance. She's now a newscaster in New York City here. And she said, we should do a 40 under 40 of this, only of only of asset allocators. And at first, I poo-pooed the idea. I think I said, ah, everyone else does that. We don't need to do that. And then we realized that no one actually did that. People did crossover lists. So on a list of a 40 under 40, there might be 10 allocators. But no one was doing that thing. And so we did it. And it was remarkably easy to put together because a lot of bosses on the allocator side really want to highlight what their people are doing. Some are scared of getting their talent out there. I always got some pushback saying, I don't put my deputy on this list. I don't want them stolen. But most people wanted to get their employees on there. Obviously, the asset managers would love to have the head of hedge funds at Texas Teachers on the list because then they can turn around and say, hey, I nominated you for this. So it really was self-reinforcing. So we did the 40 under 40. And then the big list that we did was called the Power 100. It was a ranking, in our view, of the most influential, powerful CIOs on the planet. It was hugely successful. It comes with some drawbacks. It will surprise no one. There are huge egos in this space. And I don't always get right who has a big ego and who doesn't. (laughs) I like to think I can usually judge and gauge how it's going to go. You know, David Swenson, clearly the most influential allocator of our time. He changed the game. We would look silly if he's not number one. But David Swenson also does not care in the slightest if he's number one on that list, even if he even knows it, right? But there are people who care about their careers and see this as a, a way to reinforce their position in the industry, especially when we started getting the recruiters involved and really helping us formulate this list. And we call it, we made sort of a Zagat guide of CIOs where the recruiters would anonymously give comments this person is very good at team building. You know, I'm thinking back from memory, but a Jagdeep Basher, phenomenal at team building. So that's one of the things that we write in his Saget Guide style um, thing. So that was, you know, a big challenge for us. It forced us to really learn the industry hard. Um, It was great education for myself and for everyone who worked with me. But there were some... Hiccups along the way, some bruised egos. Well, that, why don't you describe one of those? You don't have to name names. We're gonna they be we're gonna anonymize right? it. But yeah, it was a. Sure. It, I would say it's a CIO that I hugely respect and very much like, and has returned every phone call I've given in the last three years. But we put that person far down the list because I had totally misjudged their goals, what they wanted to be, and their egos, and. I emailed afterwards and said, hey, I'm going to be um, near your office. Can I come for a meeting? And he goes, I said, you said, I, I think I said, you, you said, I can always call on you. And he goes, that was before the Power 100. <laughs> <laughs> and I only then, I think before then, I didn't even realize what we were doing would have any impact. And after that, it was on one sense, well, people care about it to some degree. And the second sense was, I need to be very careful. And so the rules we have now at Institutional Investor, Basically, any, it's a good journalism rule. You're gonna piss people off. When we're writing stuff at Institutional Investor, we're trying to be what I call responsibly provocative. We never are gonna slander anyone. We're never gonna be mean about it, but sometimes people do wrong or do poorly in this industry and we have to be willing to call them out. The rule is though, you have to know who you're gonna piss off before you do it. If you haven't figured out you're gonna piss off a person or a company, and I, as the editorial director of II, get a call, and I haven't been warned about this, I'll be upset because you if you really know your subject matter, you'll know who you're pissing off. And that was part of my education with the Power 100 and other lists, always knowing who to expect <laughs> to be mad. So what? can you talk a little bit
0: about how you ranked these CIOs and, and 100 different people, and if it makes a difference to someone, whether they're 46 or 41,
1: you have to be a little bit bigger So, what were the criteria you used? So, we every year we formalized it more, and I think it really hit its stride. And it's still the way I think about things in this industry that we came up with five criteria that equaled power. And this was uh, a lot of help from the recruiters. I think you know, there's some very big, powerful recruiters here. I think of Deb Brown, yeah. David Barrett, sure. Jane Marcus. People like that really have been helpful in formulating the thinking. But we said, what's power? You know, power is innovation. Power is collaboration. Power is team development. Power is tenure and fund size. So, tenure and fund size, you can't, they're objective, right? David Swenson runs $30 billion and has been there for 30 years. Then we sort of weighted them. Innovation and collaboration were the, were the most weighted. Innovation being, David Swenson is a 30 out of 30. He changed the game. Collaboration, he did all right, in a sense, because his people spread out throughout the universe. Seth Alexander, Andy Golden, Randy Kim, Paula Valen—people all over the world. You could go on. I'm Rob Wallace. So the, all these people are Swenson proteges, and they're collaborating with each other still. At least theoretically, they are following the same s- system. But. Swenson doesn't actually do a ton of outreach to other ENFs. No, so we got we no. got a little dinged there. And then team building, he's a again, a 20 out of 20 because yeah, it, you know it, there's no better sign of success in this industry than spending time at the Yale Endowment. So that's how we broke it down. There was those five factors weighted somewhat differently, with innovation and collaboration being the foremost. And so, you know, again, it is subjective to some degree. All journalism is subjective to some degree, but we relied a lot on recruiters and you know seven or eight years of just talking to these people day in and day out yeah. and getting a sense of who's the best. The, the, the question I ask in every meeting with CIOs is which one of your peers do you respect the most? Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of commonality there. They'll always say one of the Canadian plans. They'll always yep. mention an Australian or a sort of Nordic-style plan. Um, and then there'll be something else. But there's a lot of commonality there. Yeah. And so that's the best question you can ask just to get a sense of who they think are the, you know, real rock stars of the allocator space. Yeah.
0: And how about for the younger folks? So the 40 under 40 is probably a different of as criteria. That's hard Am I allowed to swear on
1: this? I'm not sure. It's tough. You got to look at where they are. I, I always you – know, what I'm saying here, I always use examples because it's the way I think about things. But their age – relative there to their position. So, a great example is Sarah Samuels at MassPrim. Sarah is the Deputy CIO. When you speak to her, she, you know, knows exactly what she's talking about. She's at a big public plan. She will be a CIO one day. And at that time, she was uh, I she may still be in her late 30s. I wouldn't pretend to uh <laughs> <laughs> name her age right now, but um you just have to look at first where they are at what age, and then their bosses will quite often be honest with you. Um, there is a fund in Texas where we had identified one person uh, who we thought could be forty under forty material because a few asset managers had emailed us and said this person is is should be right there, and we went to the CIO and he said blank no that person that person <laughs> that person's an idiot, um, and so like we we basically checked it with the boss, and he's like, that's not the kind of person you want on your list. Here's another person within my organization who, who really deserves to be here, who's a rock star. They're the best checks on this. They, like any corporation or, or organization, they'll be ranking their employees every year in their heads at least, and you know charting paths about who they love to keep around. And so we relied a lot on the CIOs there. Consultants a little bit too, they will work with multiple asset owners, so they'll be able to compare certain people. This person is sharper. This person asks better questions. This person is doing more innovative stuff with their portfolio. So on the one hand, you have this group of people who, as you said, have
0: egos, but generally speaking, until you started shining a light on them, were out of the public eye. On the other hand, you talk about asset managers, and there are billionaires who are often in the public eye who you've also reported on. And I'm curious what you learned about the difference in what someone might perceive of either an asset owner or a billionaire or any other manager and what you experienced from being the reporter and the way you interacted with them.
1: I would say it's a lot harder. Coming to Institutional Investor, this is an absolutely phenomenal place to work. I.I.'s been around for 50 years and the doors swing wide open for I.I. So even in the last year, I've had you know, a real pleasure in meeting people that I never met before. And that's one of the great benefits of my job right now. I love it. They are very hard to predict. The way I put it is, when people get to a certain amount of wealth, it could be ten million, could be a billion. When there, will come a time when they control almost every aspect of their lives. They have the houses they want. They may always want more, isn't that a human <laughs> emotion? But they have, they have the vacation home. They have the family home, they're married, their kids want for nothing, they have assistants helping them with everything, they control every aspect of their day. When they deal with the media, they can't do that. This is The media and markets, frankly, are one thing that they don't get to control. And for some of them, it infuriates them. Some of them deal with it by simply not doing any communication. Think of Seth Klarman. Seth does do a little bit of press, usually when it's around charity work. That's his right, and that's the way he's chosen to run his business, and it's been very good for him and his investors. There are others who need media coverage because it is free advertising. It's only good you know unless you believe that all press is good press, they want to frame the story. But in the end, it's the editor and the editorial team who really do have the decision about how to frame the story after talking to a lot of people. And so they love control, and when they don't have control, they can lose it. And so I've had a number of instances where what I thought was totally fine turned out to be a nightmare of just trying to calm everything down, calm down the PR people, Calm down the, like, assistant internally. And that's all after the fact. All after the fact, because you misread it, right? Right. But it also seems to be somewhat random. You know, I had the pleasure of interviewing Henry Kravis for our video series, War Stories Over Board Games. It was maybe four months ago, and he could not have been nicer. Henry Kravis, I don't know how many billions he's worth. He controls every aspect of his life, but he walks into the film studio We have four or five people doing the filming. He walks around, asks everyone's name, sits down, is super blunt with us, is a complete gentleman. And, you know, Henry Kravis has a reputation of being a—you know, I've read Barbarians at the Gate, but he was unexpectedly pleasant. Now, I won't name names on the flip side, but there are some people who, you know, are nowhere near Henry Kravis's level but are complete a-holes. (laughs) This industry industry has them, you know, the further down the value chain you get in asset management, in my view, sort of of not asset management, but financial services, you have asset allocators on the end, they're the nicest group. And then within that group, probably corporate funds are the nicest people in in that group. Then you have consultants, then you have asset managers, and then you have, you know, quote, unquote, Wall Street, the service providers and banks. The further down that chain you go, I find the, the, the A-hole quotient goes up. <laughs> That's the the only general rule I can pull from it. So, And when you're
0: interacting with, you know, it could be a CIO about the people on their team, it could be
1: anyone, how do you go about getting information? 95% of my conversations are off the record now. I almost sort of assume conversations are off the record until we decide to go on. Yeah. It's important for we don't want to be shills, right? We have a job to try and keep an industry honest. But they have to be able to trust us as as journalists. You know, in the, it's I don't we don't play in the national security or the politics zone that we're never going to have to go to jail over a source, God willing. But certainly people want to know who our sources are sometimes, so we have to be completely trustworthy in terms of the sourcing. And so the rule we have in institutional investor is we we can publish anonymous sources, but the editor always has to know who that is so that no one can be the only person to know. And so when, you know, Julie Siegel, who's our rock star reporter, is reporting, if we're going to put something in a story, she has to tell me who that is so that we're confident that this is being sourced correctly and that all our procedures are being followed. But even for Julie, you know, most of her conversations are off the record because, she is as much a sounding board at this point as a reporter. That people trust her to trust her to be fair with them, and so it's a fine balance. Yeah. Like everything, it's yeah. a tra- it's a trade off. If if everything had to be on the record, no one would speak to us. And if everything was off the record, we would never be able to publish anything. We wouldn't be journalists. So it's about getting the trust of people, and then the more fun side of how we get stuff. I still get random uh, emails from fake email accounts. I got one uh, last week, a, a text from someone, number I didn't know, telling me to Google something. And they were trying to take someone else down a peg. And we didn't play along, but that's, you know, that's wow. still, there's still, there's still fun stuff. <laughs> like I, you know, I, I would say once a month, I get a, an email that's clearly a made up Gmail account sending me something. Uh, you always have to have the tech guys check it to make sure you're not about to unleash malware on your company, yeah. but um, that still happens. Right. Yeah. This is, a, this is a, a zero-sum business for a lot of people, yeah. right? And yeah. so they, and they're not above trying to do things that will uh, hurt
0: their competitors. So I, I do want to turn to, and we will kind of lessons learned on investing from interviewing. But before we do that, so what's been the most enjoyable experience you had with a CIO?
1: Most enjoyable experience with a CIO. That's a tough one. That's really tough. If the CIOs who know me usually know me through like awards dinners we put on, I always say that's my Christmas. I love hosting this group in a setting uh, like an awards dinner. We're starting an awards dinner here at II because it's going to make us some money, but also because it's just a fun thing to do. And um you know, usually it involves those dinners and the after party is the fun stuff. Yeah. But, you know, most of my meetings occur over a drink or over a coffee or in their offices. So it's not, it's more about, for me, the conversations that are the most fun aren't actually the investing conversations. One of the only things I've learned about investing is that there are people a lot better than me at it, and I shouldn't be doing it myself. <laughs> so when my my friends think of me as running a big investing magazine and they're always asking me like what should I do? I said, get a financial advisor. <laughs> but you know, I talking the CIOs, it's always fun talking about the business. Because as I said, they like talking about who's up, who's down. You know, what happened here, why did this fund crater they like that stuff too and they have a lot of intel. So those are the those are the off the record conversations about the business of investing and not actually yeah. trying to grow your portfolio that are the most Frequent. Yeah. Get, I'm going to ponder about actual individual fun things with you know, CIOs. But in the meantime,
0: I'd be remiss if I didn't take the flip side of that, which is you know, what's been either the most upsetting or diciest situation you found yourself in? Can,
1: I can do this. Um, I can do this. <laughs> you, you can do, come on. We can do this, Kip. I got caref- to be careful on this Choose one. Choose your words carefully. Yeah. We can always edit it out, but we won't. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, we, I was threatened with a $100 million lawsuit. They never, wow. they never filed it. And in my view, it was a bullying tactic. We wrote something about an asset manager. I was the editor of the story. And we wrote something about this firm that I know to this day to be true. It, that article was vetted by lawyers every line. And we stand by it. But that person, because the accusations were so serious, within 20 minutes of clicking publish online, I had a call from a lawyer, and I said, call my lawyer. And then it got to the point where we, from the day one, my CEO stood behind me and said, is this this true? It's true. But we spent a couple hundred grand on lawyers, and they eventually never sued us. But I still have a copy of the $100 million draft lawsuit they were going to send, which was full of silliness. But they were trying to bully... A small media brand into taking down an article that they didn't like, and looking back, it was a huge learning experience in the sense that you just have you know every editor of note has had this happen to them. Time Inc. is being sued every single day by someone, but it takes a lot of it takes a lot of your mental energy. It helps when you have bosses who stand behind you. A lot of you know good media bosses do that, but it made us you know everything. Just make sure the lawyers see it before it goes because. If they had sued, we would have won. We would have had to spend another million bucks, and they could have easily shut down the magazine just to not incur those costs. And so everything that my team and I had worked for and Charlie Ruffle had worked for could have been destroyed by a bully. So I'm in retrospect, a number of years later, I'm glad I went through it. I hope not to go through it again. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> <laughs> All right,
0: let's turn a little bit to sort of what you've learned on investing. And, and to start with, I think we can walk through this kind of often the same way I do with, with CIOs, which is what have you learned about the philosophy that CIOs bring to the table and how they think about managing a big pool of assets?
1: I want to predicate by this by saying I actually don't even do much investing in my own portfolio out of fear that I don't know nearly as much as the people who can right. do it.
0: So, it's less, less sort of your personal investing philosophy and more what have you seen that you think are factors of success from the CIOs that you've
1: interviewed? There's a number of things. I would say I would almost coach them a lot of time as critiques. We all know that the, one of the major advantages is being long term. That is, in some cases, the only advantage an institutional investor has. So, the best ones. Focus on that. You know, Britt Harris has always said that's, like, his key advantage. Like, I'm a long-term investor. I can wait you out. The sad fact is a lot of allocators say that but don't mean it. They say that, but their staff compensation is all short-term. You can't actually be a long-term investor if every single person making a decision is compensated on a 12-month cycle. And so some of the best investors, I think, of New Zealand Super, is really trying to change that equation, figure out a way. They're never going to be able to compensate their staff on a 30-year horizon, but can they compensate them on a three- or four- or five-year horizon? So I had, I had Mario Therian on CDP, mm-hmm. and that
0: their compensation setup is, no, you're not going to maximize your short-term comp in any year, but... If you're long-term and you stay around, you can get paid very nicely for a long time.
1: And I've been writing, I looked back before this, I think I wrote on this in 2012, because Jim Dunn at Wake Forest said, you should write on this, is like the Nukubo rankings. That's hugely skews the incentives. And for some of the IVs... If I describe
0: how that works a little bit, I think a lot of people wouldn't know.
1: Well, my understanding is basically every year, all the universities who want to participate, their endowments submit their returns as a benchmarking tool. They mu- I don't know what they get in return, but they get something. And so you have the average return is 3%. And then you know there'll be some tiny college who has a horribly ununiversified portfolio who it's way up there in the New York Times, right? It's a profile about, you know... Grinnell College. Right, exactly. <laughs> and But then you'll have a situation where, you know, you still produced... returns, but your peer set produced 8% returns. And so your university president comes to you and says, what's going on? If you don't get returns up, our university alumni aren't going to want to donate to us. And so I think that the focus on one-year returns in the endowment space skews things. And now you may know more about this than me, but my understanding, at least in some cases, is that their comp, individual comp, is actually tied to peer performance, Which is not at all what it should be like, because, you know, you can make the case that if you're always outperforming like a Yale, your alumni are more likely to give their money because they want David Swenson managing it, that there's an argument to be made there. But again, if your people are being compensated on short-term targets relative to peers instead of long-term targets relative to the needs of the underlying institution— There's not really an argument that can make that okay, but it persists to this day. It
0: does, you know, it it didn't when back when I worked at Yale, Mm -hmm. because uh, to exactly what you said, right? The goals of that pool of capital is to generate a certain return stream to support the spending for the institution. Mm -hmm. And you could make the case that it could be a positive sum game, that if Yale and Harvard are both doing well, then there's more people who can be educated, there's more financial aid, whatever whatever the case may be. Mm -hmm. But somewhere along the way, You bring benchmarking in. And I know I've heard about behavior where the head of a university endowment will go to a money manager who they like and tell them, I'll invest so long as you don't bring in as investors this this peer, this peer, and that peer of Mm -hmm. mine, just because if they think they're right about that, they they personally want to get the benefits of it, which may be fine for their institution, but-
1: and it's and from a from great. an industry wide going back to what makes a great CIO in my view it totally kills collaboration right right if you if you think you found the great manager in shipping and you don't want university X down the road to get it you're never going to collaborate with them on anything right so that you know the long termism thing clearly important to being a good investor but I'm not sure the industry always lives up to that standard the other. The ones, I always have to separate what's pressworthy and what's good. But I think of the, the things that have always impressed me is someone using their advantages, you know, their, their innate advantages to their advantage. Going back to Britt Harris, again, you know, he's a very well-respected CIO who deserves the praise. He maybe not pioneered, but really accelerated the use of strategic partnerships. Britt knows as the head of Texas teachers until a month ago, I got more money than God and I got the smartest guys sitting in Apollo and KKR's office in New York. How about I set up an arrangement where they have to work for me because I'm going to give them so much money, which I have a lot of, that they have to give me their best ideas. You know, it's called a strategic partnership. He Britt says, I'm going to have, you know, a TRS employee in, within their walls of their business, and we're going to have an Apollo employee in our offices every day. And so that's them using – that's Britt, in this example, using their – like innate advantages of a hundred plus billion dollar fund to get the most out of their asset managers. The opposite of that obviously is not everyone can do that, but the opposite is some small team with like three people on it, just willing to pay two and 20 for everything. Now, I think that's going the way of the dodo, you know, it's, what is it? 1.5 and 18 now, but nothing says it's going to rebound to where it was in average. There's always funds that are going to be able to charge what they feel like because they're really good at this game. But being long term, using size as your advantage. Those are things that seem to define the smart allocators.
0: And how about different models of asset allocation? So you have the sort of Yale model is one example, asset classes, people think of it as less liquid. That's a whole separate debate. You have now the factor premium models, Jim Dunn's model at Verger is more about factors than specifically assets. Are there other frameworks that you've seen that you think make a lot of sense that might be less well
1: known? No, the factor thing is obviously big right now. I'm a big cynic. So I'm always wondering, is that being overplayed? Is this just the next silver bullet that's going to get people, and I put silver bullet in air quotes, that's going to get people through the next three or four years until the next idea comes around? Um, I'm not a great judge of whether it makes sense or not. It intellectually makes sense to me, but we need to wait a while to see if it actually works, and you, know, you can't eat factors, and eventually you need to get the returns to pay the bills. And so I'm eagerly awaiting a time when we can be certain that this works for allocators and not just on a leading edge, right? The first people doing something are often going to have a good, a good experience or maybe a bad experience, too. But whether it can work for a few institutions versus all institutions is a different question. And David Swenson would say the same thing. He's often said, you guys think you're doing what we're doing, and oh, you're not. Sure. And you know more about this than me. But his argument is, don't try and do what I do because you don't have the, the size. You don't have the track record where managers want to work with you. And it's not him being eutistical. It's him being factual. You know, asset managers would love seed capital from meal and we're willing to give up a lot to get it because of what it tells the market for the next fund. Even with the factor
0: movement, I sat back with a friend of mine eh, no more than a year ago. And say, said, okay, what, what's going on with it? What is this factor stuff? And they started describing it. And I said, wait a minute. In the early 90s, Yale's U.S. equity portfolio and international equity portfolio, long only, were by choice biased towards small cap and value. Mm-hmm. Is that what you mean by factors? They're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it worked for 20 years. Now, there's also a question of Yale didn't go buy the factors. They just said, we prefer these biases. We prefer these factors in the portfolio. And then they would go look for managers that were experts that happen to be covering those spaces. So you create the exposures bottom up. But it, it, d- does that work as much today? Well, who knows? And then you have the askness, are not debate. Like, can you time factors? Can you not time factors? Nobody knows.
1: Right. <laughs> no, and there's other, there's, there's things that pop up. So I've been covering this business since nine So any fad in those years that has happened, I've been on top of. Risk pro- parity? Risk parity. <laughs> <laughs> I love and hate risk parity. I should say that... Um, I am forever indebted to Bridgewater. Bridgewater were the first sponsor of CIO magazine. Oh, great. And they, you know, this was in the depths of the financial crisis. So I, and they've been immensely good to me. And so I'm always biased towards them. And I understand my own bias there. But risk parity, obviously, they were a huge driver of it. And there's two camps in that. It has been wholly accepted by, I would say, I'm, I'm, Generalizing, American CIOs have really accepted that corporate funds. You'd be hard pressed to find a corporate fund without risk parity, in or, with, or without an account with Bridgewater, for that matter. That too, they go hand in hand right now. But you know, I I have a um, friend who's a CIO in London of a you know a twenty billion odd fund, and his view was that risk parity is a intellectually dishonest idea perpetuated by a bully. That was his take on it. So it really brings out a lot of... Wow. That was his... I won't, I won't name him either, but that's, that's sort of the other side of the argument. And so it's really been accepted by people. And it's
0: done fine. It hasn't... It's done fine. I mean, right, the counter case to risk parity is... it's. You know, risk parity slash levered bonds.
1: Right? That why would you want to That's own right. levered bonds right now? <laughs> <laughs> we'll
0: and so, see. We'll see how that plays. You know,
1: out. and then there's the one thing that really, and I have anyone who knows me even for ten minutes in this industry knows I hate this. There's the overplay of marketing terms here, is insane. So, what are your favorite ones to hate? Well, the, the all-time king is solutions that it, absolutely meaningless term now. And it's been <laughs> meaningless for five years. And I've had a good enough friends that I, there was an asset manager in Boston who I went and I think I had a drink with him. He goes, I go, he goes, I have some bad news. I said, what? He goes, my title has turned to like director of solutions. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, you got to get that change because it means nothing. Yeah. It sounds like marketing and because it is marketing so often. There are, I would say there are people who truly provide solutions. I think of Anissa Investment Advisors who are just, you know, along now with legal in general, really own the liability-driven investing space in America. Jess Yawitz is a, an, almost a mythical figure. To the corporate funds and he deserves to be because he really changed that game he's truly giving them a solution yeah
0: but there's there's also a shift there's been a shift in mindset that if you go back 10 years maybe a little bit longer asset management industry was selling you their product Mm -hmm. it's like we make this kind of pizza there are eight slices two of them are pepperoni three are sausage would you like it if not that's fine
1: but how how many are still doing that but calling it a solution?
0: Well, post-crisis, yeah. there is some degree to which people are willing to say, you can have a slice of pepperoni if you want. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you can have a slice of sausage pizza, whatever, you know. And that, that was catalyzed by the crisis. Now, whether or not that becomes a thing called solutions or it's a shift in the mindset of the asset manager saying, we now have to have a different relationship. That's, w- a, that's a separate
1: question. I, again, very much ballparking. I'd say 30% of the asset managers actually changed the way they did business. The other 70% just pretended to change the way they do business. So solutions is that. Another smart beta, again, has sort of become a word. Everyone, every asset manager selling it has another name for it. And so it, we're always trying to sort through the BS to figure out what they're actually talking about. Yeah. But there are these brilliant names, right? Like life insurance
0: just being a great example, right? What you buy is death insurance. Right. <laughs> <laughs> turns out it doesn't sell quite as well. Exactly. <laughs> Portable alpha was a great one. That was
1: actually, port- the product was portable beta. Mm-hmm. Just didn't sound as good. <laughs> yeah, so there's these there's these fads that go up and down. And I would say underlying that all is the people who are going to be successful going back are the people who are actually thinking long-term, are actually trying to use their size to almost bully the asset manager into giving them what they want, a true solution. Those are the people who's going to be successful and not the people who just try to emulate a David Swenson. Because even David Swenson would say that's... You're going to get shot in the foot at some point trying that.
0: One of the things that's been interesting about your seat is you, you interview CIOs and have interviewed and have relationships with CIOs all over the world. And certainly when David wrote his seminal work in whatever it was, 2000, the U.S. endowment model became kind of the new, new thing. You mentioned the Canadian pensions, and certainly there's an eye on the Canadian pensions. I'm curious where you think some of the best thinking is happening around the world, and maybe some of the factors of that thinking that might be a little bit different from the U.S. CIO.
1: Again, I always have to, I always say, I'm Canadian. I'm not supporting the Canadian funds because I'm Canadian. Before I started, I had no idea Canada was any good at this. My parents who. I know my dad does. I think my mom gets the CPP pension plan. They had no understanding that CPP is one of, if not the most well-respected allocator in the world. So I think, you know, what they really nailed is the governance. I started by talking about the pay of endowment managers getting high enough that they all spun out because they didn't want to deal with loud students and noisy alumni and annoying faculty, the Canadians really set up the model so they're paying market wages. They may not be able to pay as much as Goldman Sachs in Toronto, but they're pretty darn close. They also set it up so that pay doesn't it's not one year thing, it's three or five year thing. They set it up at it's called a crown corporation often where politicians have absolutely no say over their pay. We've seen it so many times when Ted Eliopoulos has to deal with California politicians trying to intrude on CalPERS about stuff that us in the industry know is silly. It's not about what you pay for an asset manager. It's the value you get out of it. If I'm going to get $100 return, I only have to pay $10 for it. Yes, sign me up. But in the American political sphere, that actually is a problem. So the Canadians have really got that governance Right. Talking to Ashby Monk, who's a columnist of ours, he's an advisor to UC Regents, among other things, works with a ton of what we call giants, big pension plans. His view is that Canadians just trust their institutions more. Americans stopped trusting their political institutions during the Vietnam War, and it's only gone downhill since. Apparently, we never had that problem in Canada. So, we, Canadians, are more understanding of setting up a system where, you know, a David Dennison or someone else working those funds can get paid $5 million and not get yelled at by a politician and have their pay cut. What that allows them to do is also be truly innovative. You know, it's now old, but I think of Canada Pension Plan joining with Silver Lake and buying Skype and waiting it out for like six months. There are some legal issues and effectively doubling their investment in a year. They used Silver Lake as a partner, but they are so good and sophisticated they're cutting out the middleman in a lot of cases. Yeah. Now asset managers don't always love this. If they're truly exceptional like the silver, like they benefit too, because they're probably sourcing that deal and they know that Canada pension plan has all this money and they can move quickly and they're sharp investors, they'll understand what it's telling them. But you know, the next phase is once the governance is right, and if they have the size, like a Yale might not be able to do it, they're you know, 30 you billion is big, but not that big. If they have the size, going direct. You see it with one of the firms with the best trajectory right now is Case to the Depot. Yeah. They were thought of in Canada, and I, we put it on the cover of II, they were thought of as the dumb money for a long time. And this was 10 years ago, so I can say that because no one working there now will get <laughs> mad except at except me. Mario. <laughs> when he will get mad at <laughs> um, But they were thought of as the dumb money, and now like they they are leaping over a lot of the ones they're doing direct investing. You know they're partnering with pension funds around the world, setting up offices. They've got their. Sounds like they've got their governance right. So now they're able to, if you don't have to pay the asset manager and you can do it yourself and get the returns and not have to pay them the money, that's a good return for the ultimate beneficiaries who need that money to survive retirement. So I think, you know, will we get there with American public plans? I'm not sure in the in my career, uh, hopefully I still have 30 years doing this, but yeah. I'm not sure we'll get there. You'll see some success stories, you know, going back to Britt Harris, they got a lot of leeway, like Chris Aylman. If anyone's going to get there, it's going to be him. But that's a hard slog for those guys because of the political involvement that you see here, but not in Australia, not in Canada, not in Europe.
0: Yeah, and how about Australia? That's a market I, I don't know a lot about, but love to hear your thoughts.
1: Smart guys. Again, a really good system. If anyone's nailed the defined contribution system, they, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, every employee had to put in 9%. It's going to 12%, sort of required to go into the superannuation system. And they are very forward thinking. The, I would, you know, are they mini Canadians? No, they're probably just, they're on par with the Canadians in what they're doing. They're partnering with the best asset managers. And you can always tell which asset managers are. Clever by the ones that invest a lot of time in Australia. Bridgewater was a very early player in that space because I think Ray Dalio understood that these people were very sophisticated and there's money coming into this system and they need to put it to work. So, you know, they've had some changes in their legislation. There's fewer of them. The government is encouraging them to merge. But when you ask people about the sharpest investors, Future Fund, Aussie Super, UniSuper down there, they're doing things that the Canadians are also doing. They have yeah. their own issues. You know, the currency play is hard for them. It's a, like Canada, a, a country dependent on a lot of resource wealth, which creates its own issues. But they're always mentioned in the somewhat of the same breath as the Canadians.
0: I want to hit on a few, a few things you've written about that are your perceptions that are different how things are commonly done. So simple topics, but I think worth talking about. One is U.S. pension
1: return targets. I mean, they're absolute idiocy. <laughs> the the accounting of you can quibble. It's not a five percent. It's not what corporate funds are, are told to do. But anyone who has an eight point two five percent target, all they're doing is is gaming the accounting. And so this is when. It's not as bad as some... Politics is everything in America. It's not as bad as people make it out to be. I hate when I see that Public Fund X has had a bad year. They're only up 2%. And so there's some think tank guy coming in and saying, this is criminal. We need to end this right now. He's using that one-year return target as a, a weapon. Just as when they're up 15%, you shouldn't turn around and say, problem solved. But I think you're seeing, in some cases, people are getting more realistic about those targets, because 8.25%, the CIOs don't believe but it's, it. I mean, we saw this with the
0: endowments in, in through the financial crisis. It's not like you can cut the budget so dramatically year over year. These things just have to move at a glacial pace. Yeah, no, it's, it's tough. It's, uh, but it is fun to look at because it makes no sense. Right? It, makes it makes no, no sense, sense at all.
1: How about client service of asset management firms? There are some firms that do it extremely well. And I don't know, I'm not a client, but I talk to clients, and I've mentioned a lot of them. Nisa investment advisors, f- corporate funds love their client service. Bridgewater has invested a ton in their client service. AQR, great client service. Now, I think I wrote at one point, like, no asset manager thinks they're bad at client service, but when you pull asset owners, and we have formally pulled them, 80% of asset managers have poor client service. There's a huge disconnect in what they think. It's underinvested in because it's not a it, it's not a clear revenue environment, right? It's a cost on their in their balance sheet. And the smart asset managers know that it's a cost that you really should bear because it's of a hedge in downtime. If asset manager X is down 5%, but they have great client service, and that client service person is coming to them and saying, here is what's going on. I, if you have any further questions, the CIO is available to speak to you, um, providing them with all the material that the CIO needs to go to speak to his board. Say, I call it arming the CIO. You know, a chief investment officer at a pension fund has bosses too. And a good asset manager is going to arm that CIO with the material he needs to explain to his bosses why Fund X is down 5%. Bad client service is when you just send the note saying we're down 5%. You get another letter in a quarter. That's bad. You know, and so I think a lot of people think, well, they can log into the website and see where we're at. And, we'll, and our CEO, CIO will send out a, a letter every quarter. They think that's good client service. And I mean, it's not even close to good client service. How about the relationships with CIOs
0: and consultants?
1: Again, I gotta. St- I can't swear on these things. My mom, no, you can actually. I have
0: one of one of my episodes is actually marked explicit in iTunes.
1: Okay, I would. I would say. <laughs> every, I'll say it then. Everyone shit talks consultants, but it's like lawyers. Everyone hates lawyers except their own lawyer. So everyone hates consultants, but not everyone has them. But a lot of people have consultants, and a lot of people like them. There are some problems with the model. They, own, they have a buy list, and they're going to choose off that buy list. But that's, they have to scale their business somehow. They're not going to solve your problems for you. They're going to try and help you solve them. And I think there's a, a big quality difference in consultants. It's no secret who I think are really good at their jobs. You know, I think of NEPC, FEG uh, increasingly. They're really forward-thinking firms, and the individuals within them have a lot of vibrancy. And you speak to NEPC's clients, and they love them. And they love the individual consultant. But then you, then people say, oh, the consulting industry is broken, and it sucks. They were saying that when I started covering this in 2009. And I, as far as I can tell, consultants haven't lost an iota of power. They're going to be here. And so I think firms should be – asset allocators should be willing to pay for good consultants. Don't expect something for nothing. It's like everything else yeah. in life. Yeah. And how do you think a CIO –
0: or alternatively a asset allocation organization will succeed as you look out for the next five or 10 years? What are the, what are the
1: factors that you've seen that will create future success? I would go back to the things that we ranked as power, people who are willing to take risks, intelligent risks. You know, if you're going to just do what everyone else does, it's not that interesting for me editorially. And and that should be their first criteria. I think, There's I no doubt that about is, that. I think we can all agree that's what's most important here. Um, <laughs> no, it's, it, they're just going to be part of the crowd. It's the people who are willing to go out there and take intelligent risks and use those advantages. The ones that are wanting to collaborate with their peers to get best ideas, to realize that, yes, in some sense it's a zero-sum game, but if the UTC pension and the Xerox pension both have the same manager, they're probably both gonna be fine if it's a great manager. And then it's not its not so much success on an individual level, but the industry needs more David Swenson's. He has trained, how many, 20, 30 CIOs, somewhere in there. And if not yet, they will be eventually. There's some other people who really care about this, I think like Brian Pellegrino at UPS. This is something that Britt Harris cares a lot about. We need more of those people so that there's a talented pool coming up, because there's no like CIO school, right? You can get your, you'll get your CFA, but you and 200,000 other people this month will get your CFA. So the the CIO schools are sort of like being a PM at a, at a corporate fund or a public plan, and so there needs to be more more mentorship, more Swenson like mentorship in this industry.
0: All right. Well, let's turn to some closing questions. Okay. A little bit different from what we've been talking about. A little nervous now. (laughs) Here we go. What's your favorite thing to do that is a complete waste of time?
1: Favorite thing to do, build rock walls. Build rock walls. I I lived in New York for eight years. In the city. No, God, no. (laughs) (laughs) I lived in New York for eight years and recently got a house outside the city. And I am obsessed with building like rock walls on the property. It's my true passion. And now, driving around, I'm critiquing everyone else's rock walls. It's very much like, you know, one other trend in this industry, meditation. Apparently everyone meditates now in asset management. I don't meditate, I build rock walls. That is is sort of my weekend activity. Excellent, excellent. What
0: was your favorite sports moment, either as a participant or a fan?
1: As a fan, I was 10 years old, Joe Carter, Blue Jays, yeah. hits the home run. Caveat that my power had gone out. I lived in slightly rural Canada. <laughs> and so I was listening on a, a battery-powered radio when I was 11 years old to Joe Carter hitting the home run. And then um, personally, I feel like my entire rowing career has been reduced. If anyone's seen the Facebook movie, that is our, the rowing scene in England. That's my last college race. Um, oh, nice. So my entire rowing career has been reduced to being a teammate of the Winklevoss Facebook twins. <laughs> but I have a lot of good memories from rowing with a lot of guys who are now in, actually in finance, you know, yeah. private equity. So I, um, there's not one of them I like to pick out, but that's, I have a lot of good memories of that.
0: What phrase did your mother or father repeat to you over and over that most stuck with you?
1: My dad always says details. He's, he's a lawyer, and he details matter to him. And if you ask my team now, that message has been seeped into what we do. I always say process. Journalism is a creative endeavor, but there needs to be a process to avoid being sued, to make sure something goes up on time. And so we're, you know, the, the details-oriented approach that my father taught me is, um, has stuck with me through <laughs> my career. <laughs> All right, what profession
0: other than journalism would you love to attempt?
1: I would have loved to have been a rowing coach. I try coaching Casually, absolutely horrible at it. <laughs> but uh, um, the, one of the most important people in my life, he actually is the most important people in a lot of people's lives in finance, is a guy named Harry Parker, who was the Harvard yeah. rowing coach for 53 years. He coached Bill Ackman, yeah. coached Reed Griffith, who runs Tetragon. He was a hugely important part of our life. Part of me would love to just be the next Harry Parker, yeah. but I'm I'm horrible at rowing coaching, sadly. <laughs> <laughs> What,
0: what book that you've read in the last stretch of time has been sort of most influential or, or most interesting?
1: This is the easiest. I'm obsessed with Robert Caro's biography of Lyndon Johnson. As I said, I'm Canadian. I don't, think, I don't think I knew who Lyndon Johnson was when I showed up to go to college in the States. And then eight years ago, someone handed me a book called The Power Broker. It's about Robert Moses, the man who built yeah. New York. And I liked it a lot. It was nerding out. But I knew that Robert Carroll, the author, had um, written another series on Lyndon Johnson. And I wanted to know why. Why would he, to me, he seemed like a minor president. He wasn't JFK. He wasn't Ronald Reagan. So I started reading it. And so the total book is like 4,000 pages at this point. It's not done yet. It's over almost 35 years old since he started. And I've read it multiple times. I've been to Johnson's ranch. A couple weeks ago, I was like a teenage girl meeting Taylor Swift. Outside our office, Robert Carroll was walking, and all I could do was stand there. <laughs> I, follow, I, I followed him for a little bit because I was going to say something, and then I froze again because I didn't know what I would say to him. And then he left, and I was so disappointed in myself because oh, he is no. my literary hero, yeah. and I couldn't, you know, couldn't talk to him. But no, LBJ is a fascinating character. And these books are amazing understanding of how power works. And that's, you know, it's influenced a lot of what I've done journalistically, the Power 100. That came from the idea that like, power is important. What are you most proud of? Most proud of, besides my rock walls, I wouldn't say, I'm not sure pride is the issue. The thing that I'm most happy about with work is the community that we've built both at CIO and now at Institutional Investor. It's really cool from where I stand when I can bring together a room of 200 people, 300 people. When I say I, it's, it's Leanna Orr, it's Amy White, it's Julie Siegel, it's Kat Storfer here at II. It's all these people who help do it. But there's something hugely rewarding when you host an event, when you host asset allocators and asset managers. and be able to bring them together. That's on one thing. There's one piece of journalism that I'm scared I'll never be able to top. What was that? It was a piece called The Departed, and it was actually not really about institutional investing, but it was close enough that we felt we could put it in the magazine. It was a financial advisor who I grew up knowing on Vancouver Island. He had gone to Princeton. He'd gone to three Olympics in rowing. He'd moved back home, and become a financial advisor to a lot of my family friends, including a legendary rowing coach that I know, uh, my preschool teacher, uh, a lot of my parents' friends. And not last November, but the November after, before that, sorry, he had gone for a bike ride and didn't come home that night. They sent out the search party and they um, find he's jumped the border. He's gone from Vancouver Island down to Washington. And they think that's weird. This is on a Tuesday. On a Thursday, his clients open their physical mailbox. And in it is a letter that says, I'm sorry, I lost all your money in the dot-com bubble. I've been running a Ponzi scheme for 15 years. Oh, my God. And so I really dug into this and, you know, went real journalism style. interviewed everyone, got security camera footage, got original documents that he had been falsifying return statements for fifteen years, and to our audience, to institutional investors, they would know these are false statements, right from looking at them, but to a preschool teacher who's you know giving her money to a family friend, these look totally normal and so I wrote this article. It was the most read thing I ever wrote, and it sort of spoke to like the actual impact of illegality in this industry. It was a mini Bertie mainoff people 's lives are actually on the line when do this. Yeah. Now, the twist is he went missing for 18 months and around three months ago he walks into the local police station
0: turns himself, turns in.
1: himself in he's alive. He he'd suggested in this letter that he was going to go kill himself and he was alive. So now he's waiting to stand trial. So I hope to write a follow-up jailhouse interview with him. With him, that'd be great. Yeah. No, So those are the, you know, in specifically journalism, that article, but in general as I said, the events we put on here at II and CIO, those are the things that I'm proud of, because it's a team effort, and you get the people there.
0: What do you know now that you wish you knew 10 years ago?
1: Right before the financial crisis, my dad gave me a chunk of money to manage. <laughs> you wish he hadn't. <laughs> I wish I had a, It went down like 30%, like everyone else is on Earth, right? Yeah. I wish I knew that you should leave the, this kind of stuff to the experts, right? There are people who there's not as many people as you think who have a skill in this business, but there are clearly people who are good at choosing investments that will go up at a rate of return that is like acceptable. And I'm not sure I'm one of those people. <laughs> and I should have learned that a couple years before I did. Yeah. So it's your waning days
0: you are sitting in your crew boat You're you're in your 90s, let's call it. You're not really rowing anymore, but you're sitting for old time's sake. What what advice would you give
1: yourself today? What advice would I give myself today? Calm down. I've, for people who know me, I have calmed since the start of covering this. I'm much calmer. It's probably because I have a, a wife who tells me to shut up sometimes (laughs) and i've had a few things in my life that have put a lot of things in perspective in a good way just the you know not everything's a crisis right things will get better eventually i used to flip out editorially i feel bad for some of my employees at the smallest things would throw me off because i was so invested in what we're doing but i lost perspective on you know a misspelling isn't going to end your career kind of thing. So now I, I, I hope that even now I would give the advice to 25-year-old Kip. Calm down, take the long view, yeah. <laughs> um, and things will be fine. So, Great. Kip, thank you so much. Really enjoyed it. No, thanks for having me. I, uh, this was fun. So I look forward to hearing it, or at least cringing at it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode.
0: I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you've liked what you've heard, please write a review on iTunes or Google Play to help others find out about the show. Have a good one and see you next time.